So France did it, wrapping up the Grand Slam in Paris on Saturday, and I'm sure the party is still going. Episode 8 of the Rugby Paper Podcast reviews Super Saturday and the tournament as a whole with me, Nick, Brendan, an ex-England prop and current TV pundit, David Flatman. Good morning, gents. Did we all have a good weekend? Outstanding. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, I I was over in Paris and um, it was completely wonderful until we got in a little shuttle taxi back to the hotel instead of basically, I went with Nick Mullins and we were basically going to walk, but someone said, oh, this taxi's going back anyway. It's only a 10 minute walk, but we'll jump in. We got back to the hotel an hour and a half later, the bar was shut. Dinner, everyone who's gone out for dinner had moved on. So did actually watch France and went to bed without having had a single beer. Yeah. <laughs> Is that a first? Uh, yeah, it was because Lawrence had booked a table. And if Lawrence books a table, you're in, aren't you? That's the best night of your life, but missed it. Oh, no, I'm sorry to hear. Well, David Flatman, it's great to have you with us. I suppose this is reliving the glory days as you're back with the rugby paper, having started your media career with us. Am I right? I take that as Gary Barlow wrote, you know, never forget where you're coming from and uh, where you came from. And this is where it, this is where it all began. I remember sitting in my utility room in my old house when I was a player, thinking, what on earth, what on earth do I write about? And as soon as I opened my laptop and worked out how to work it. Not not a joke, I, I don't use, I still don't use a laptop now to write columns, which is ridiculous. But um, I opened it and it, the words flowed out and I sent it to my agent and she said, this is so this is so garbage. I'm surprised it's that bad. I thought you'd be better. Maybe think about, <laughs> think about starting again. <laughs> she rejected it before you even saw it. I, I was just thinking, Flats, where's that? sort of superb rugby shed that you were uh, that you you had built with all all the modcons and the yeah, I, I did that so what I did was I did an advert for the brewery that built it right it was a that was the, it was the rugby shed and it was whoever the brand was and I went to see it and I did it was, it was like half a day's filming in someone's garden and it was all it was all good fun and it's a wicked thing to have but it it all broke down, as I'm sure you remember. It, it broke down into a normal-looking, really nice-looking shed. So I said, instead of paying me to do this filming, can I just have a shed? And they said, well, the sheds are 65 grand each. So no. <laughs> so, <laughs> I only went inside it once on the day. That was the only contact I ever had. <laughs> well, it's great to have you back. Let's get into the rugby. There's plenty to talk about. Obviously, the headline is... The French have done it. Now, we, what's interesting is in episode one of the Rugby Paper podcast with Jerry Guscott, we build this as the most competitive six, or some of us did. Guscott was not so keen on the most competitive six nations ever. When I come to you, Brendan, because it was in episode one that you said that this may be one of the most, if not the most competitive six nations in recent times. Does this mean that France have exceeded the already very high expectations that you had for them in the tournament? No, what I think it means is that in the cold light of day, England, Scotland and Wales have underperformed because there's no reason why those three couldn't have been up there or at least challenging harder for the big two. I mean, there's no doubt about it. A lot of people have said it's now two divisions in the Six Nations and that is quite clear now. But two months ago, I didn't think that was quite the case. So I was a bit disappointed in in, in those three in that one of them didn't come out of that division two uh, and, and put a good run together. Ultimately, though, fantastic champions, worthy champions, uh, but Ireland will be reflecting, but for a really sloppy half an hour in Paris, it could have been them. Nick, I'm going to come to you about this. A Grand Slam 18 months before a World Cup, obviously winning the tournament is fantastic. But as a World Cup statement, it is absolute gold dust. For you, where does this rank in terms of Six Nations Grand Slam statements for the rest of the rest of Europe and also the rest of the world? I mean, it's a huge statement by France and um it couldn't be better timing, really. You know, I mean, England managed one before they went into the 23-2003 World Cup. And, you know, the benefits of it in terms of confidence just can't be exaggerated. You know, I mean, it's a huge boost for, for France and it's an uplift in every sense. And it's something that England in particular should really look at because the uplift for the game in France, I think, corresponds pretty starkly with what's going on in the game in England at the moment. But we'll probably come to that uh, later on down the track. But for France, fantastic. You know, I mean, Dupont rose to the occasion. Their composure and their cohesion uh, when they needed it was there. And obviously their their sheer ability. Flats, are are France now your favourites for 2023? Uh, Probably not. They're the team that I think it's be great for another Northern Hemisphere team to win it because it just keeps it interesting. 
And also the home nation winning just means it's a better time for everyone that's there, which means that probably for the vast majority of people that watch the games, it'll be on telly as opposed to live, of course. And it will just look better because it will be party time, you know, and it'd be wonderful. I've got no doubt they're going to put on a great World Cup. But I, one thing I think that all sorts of companies do it, let's create our brands, you know, our values, whatever it is, our, you know, so, so often I think it's all bullshit. But I, I look at France and I think they actually have an identity. They really have one. I look at England and as someone who is, you know, there are lots of people that know more than I do about the game. And actually, I think that journalists, experienced journalists are often the best at describing how a team plays. They're often better than pundits because we, we, we watch things in, we, watch, we all watch things slightly differently. We don't have to really give generic takes until 20 seconds after the end of the game and quick wrap up. What we do is moment by moment, whereas the rugby writers, you guys, you know, you, you sort of zoom out a lot of the time and you, you often inform us about how a team's playing, actually. But England, I really struggle to tell you how they play. I really struggle to tell you what their brand of rugby is. doesn't mean it's all bad. It just means I struggle. But I think, actually, at the moment, the ultimate team in terms of identity is South Africa. And people say what they want about how boring the Lions tour was. They won it. People say what they want about the boring semi-final against Wales in, you know, in Japan. They won it and they won the final. England were mesmeric in the semi-final and they got battered by a team who know what they're about better than any other team in the world. And they pick massive bruisers and sprinkle a bit, sprinkle a bit of genius out wide and they beat you up and then run around you. And I think that, you know, the fact that everyone knows exactly what's coming with South Africa and can't stop it. I still feel right now we're a long way out. Right now, they would be my favourites to win it because they know they just know who they are better than anyone else. Can I just say, I mean, this is a completely off topic. Isn't it great to not know the answer to that question and not have a South Africa in the Six Nations so that we would know those answers before World Cup time comes around? Because the truth is, we have no idea. An understrength South Africa took it to England, nearly won at Twickenham. But we haven't had South Africa versus France, both you know, at the peak of their powers, that's to remain a mystery until 2023, which is very exciting. Brendan, sorry, are we going to say Yeah, that's a really good point about South Africa. I mean, it's one of the many reasons I'd be, you know, against South Africa joining the Six Nations. I'm just going to go back to what Flats was saying about the identity of the French team. There's something going on with France. It's almost like they've got a, like a sort of um, embedded photographer like Liz Truss and Boris Johnson have. Every sort of moment of their life seems to be captured somehow. There's these fantastic social media stuff that goes out of them, you know, hugging the trophy, uh, all the, in, in the changing rooms of intimate moments, all that kind of stuff. They're really into that. They do that really well. And they seem to be very open to the, to the press and media. And I, <laughs> there's a big difference how I feel between France and England and one or two other teams as well. I want to say one, a couple of other things on France. So I saw an interesting stat about Sean Edwards, who in his time with France and Wales, he's won more Grand Slams in the last 15 years than the other four nations combined. It's an absolutely bonkers stat. Does that, for you, Nick, cement his status as the best coach in world rugby? I, I don't know about the best coach in world rugby, but certainly in terms of what he's achieved, and that's usually a very good yardstick, his, uh, his achievements are fantastic. And what he's done with, uh, uh, with France is, um, you, you might say, is even mind-boggling, you know, where you consider that they're, where their discipline and where their defence was previously. But it's it's more than that with him. It's everything that's associated with bringing that sort of rigour into the game. Uh, their counter-attack, you know, springs off, off that ability in defence and that technique at the turnover and, the, and at the clear-out that they've got. You know, they don't miss... They miss very few tackles. You know, Edwards has been rocket fuel for France. So I, I just think that... Like, just like being, well, coach is exactly the same as being a teacher. You're a teacher, aren't you? And I often think to myself, you know, I, I've played, I was taught by and I was coached by and played under coaches who, without quite realising it, are almost on a mission to passively bully you with their knowledge and tell you how much they know. Rugby union defence is not very complicated. It is very, very rarely a complicated thing. Now and again, there's a, well, there's a conversation about, you know, if someone hits in, there's a decoy. Do we all follow them in? If one, if the twelve hits in, the thirteen has to hit in, the eleven has to hit in. So the fullback then takes lot. Like, whatever it is, there's the backfield defence is kind of its own animal. But ultimately, you've got your first defender at the ruck doesn't leave their post in case there's a ball back inside the old George Gregan ball. 
the the, sec, the second defender takes the nine unless he runs directly if he runs unless he runs directly across him in which case it becomes the third man and then people start stepping in it's not complicated there's up and in there's drift and all that stuff which you can call in the moment but the, one of the things that I think is probably I could be wrong is probably one of the, the thing that makes Sean Edwards so successful is that he doesn't overcomplicate something that if, if you overcomplicate it you're asking lads under the most unbelievable pressure with their heart rate at 180 plus to make serious decisions it will never work that would never work he knows that I expect his coaching is reasonably simple but what he does is motivate you to a point where you love it it's no longer like right lads we've got to do our defense now it's this is it we're going to we're going to annihilate teams all of their plans, we're going to annihilate their plans and we're going to be proud of our work and we're going to love it. And he makes teams love defending. And the best way to do that is to simplify it. It's a little bit like being a co-commentator, actually, in that people probably and understandably assume that you know everything and you don't. We don't know anywhere near everything. There's loads of stuff on Saturday that you three would have, you guys would have watched on telly that I missed or Ben missed. Loads of stuff. It's not about that. It's about communication. It's about having enough knowledge and being a good enough communicator and knowing your audience. He is evidently a brilliant communicator, even in his second language. A lot of it will be physical, I'm sure. A lot of it will be loud. Um, a lot of it will be crude. But he gets people going and he makes them love defending. And to think that he's... If someone says he's the best coach in the world, people think this guy's technical knowledge must be off the scale. I'm sure his, I'm sure his is but I bet you that ain't why he's the best defensive coach in the world. I bet you it's because he communicates simple messages brilliantly. I think that's exactly it. And we had Shane Williams on a couple of weeks ago and in, in writing for the rugby paper recently, he said that when he was under Sean Edwards, he, I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but it wasn't a, a terror, but it was just a, a desire that he bred within you to make X, Y, Z happen on a rugby pitch and stick to Sean Edwards' system to a T. You're desperate, absolute. There are some coaches every now and again, just like teachers, that you are absolutely desperate not to let down. And he's one of those guys. The French rugby team, they've clearly fallen in love with defending all over again. I think France has fallen in love with its rugby team all over again. On the Sunday, L'Equipe published a headline and it translated as to infinity and beyond, essentially saying, I think, the sky is the limit for this France team. Brendan, do you think that's romanticising it a bit? Or do you think that is, you know, that essentially captures the essence of where this rugby team is going? Well, that's very Lequeep, isn't it? I quite like that. No, I don't think it romanticises it. Uh, I think everybody acknowledges this is, this team is nowhere near the finished article. Um, and they've got some great youngsters who we haven't even heard of yet who will be coming through. So there's a, that conveyor belt. But no, uh, they, they want to win the next World Cup. They probably need to win it in terms of all the, the effort and publicity and emotion that's gone into it. But... I see no reason why they shouldn't. Uh, I don't see any reason why they can't play a brand of rugby that we will be talking about 50 years later. All, all that is possible, and, and why not? Why not aim for it? Just, just a quick one on Sean Edwards. I talked to him last year about this very subject of tackling, and, and the way he painted it to them, I think, is that you want to hurt the other bloke. You really want to hurt him. And in the past days with France, that means a bit of physical violence, gratuitous violence, you know, macho. So the best way to hurt somebody is to hit him with a legal tackle, hit him hard, hit him hard five seconds later, hit another bloke 10 seconds later, hit another bloke 15 seconds later, just remorselessly with these hard legal tackles, and they will be in dust, you know, within minutes. And that's the approach he's brought in there. So he's channeled all that French psyche and madness and desire to hurt the opposition into a tackling, uh, you know, offensive tackling regime. And just one final note, we haven't actually spoken about him all that much on this podcast, on Antoine Dupont. I suppose all these stats are coming out as it's towards the end of the tournament. But one thing that I've been struck by is that generally the scrum half quality in this tournament has been very high. Dupont, Thomas Williams, Jamie Gibson, Ali Price are all mainstays in the attacking systems that Ireland, France, Scotland, Wales have. Now, there was, I think it was the BBC that released this. There were stats on the average metres made based on the box kicking, the sniping around the rucks, et cetera, from scrum halves. And Jamie Gibson Park was second, and above him, two and a half times higher um, than Jamie Gibson Park was Dupont. And that's a Jamie Gibson Park who people are saying, you know, he's, he's become one of the best nines in the world and cemented his status there. His box kicking was brilliant 
against England on Saturday for the most part. He went had one kick that went dead, but other than that, it was pin perfect. Nick, is that something that we don't give enough attention to for his game, or is that just testament to the fact that he is as complete a nine as we've seen? The latter. He's he's a complete nine. And um, his box kicking is... And it's not just his box kicking. It's wiper kicks that he puts in. It's, you know, gaining ground with kicks. It's clearing from what looks sometimes like impossible angles in defence. Um, his all-round kicking game is, is excellent. And that's mirrored in everything else. The speed of his pass... I, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's measurable, but the speed with which he clears the ball is, I think, unrivaled, even by Gibson Park, who's obviously very, very good. The typical Kiwi who, you know, the ball just moves um, from the breakdown instantly almost. But um, the, the other thing is, is the threat that he offers. I mean, Gibson Park has, ha- I'm pretty sure, has had a sniping uh, try in the, in the Six Nations. But, you know, the try that DuPont came up with on the hour against England was exactly what was needed. The timing was superb. The, the, you know, the power at that stage in the game to, to, to escape the clutches of everybody, the teamwork with Aldrit, who's, you know, beautiful offload to him, but his reading of it, he's a fantastic player. Let's move back across the pond now. Um, slightly more sombre outlook on things uh, from the England point of view. Now, we spoke about it very briefly before starting recording. David, the RFU has made a statement explicitly saying that it backs Jones. The whole discourse direction coming out of England camp is that they've made progress. Do you think that's essentially trying to get the media off Jones's back or do you see some progress and at, from the start of this tournament to the end of this tournament? Uh, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say a lot of progress. I think that People are understandably talking about Eddie Jones um, being sacked and being replaced. I think that when you look and, and South Africa the, before the last World Cup with Rassi Rasmus are being used as the example, I think, but actually the reality is that when Rassi Rasmus took over, South Africa were in a worse, a significantly worse place than England are now. And to that end, I think it is probably a lot easier to come in and add value and have an impact. It's almost like in, in club terms, who are the premiership club you most want to take over now? I mean, Bath by 8,000 miles. That's where you'd want to go in as chairman. You know, so someone like Ed Griffiths, if he could choose between Tigers and Bath, Bath, please. But I, but I think that you could argue that England don't necessarily need as much work. But I think it, when South Africa did win it, it was seen as an absolutely phenomenal achievement against, against all odds to turn that team around and win the World Cup. So that equation and those odds haven't really altered. It becomes a massive decision to replace Eddie Jones. I think it is a, I don't think it would ever be an easy decision this far out, 18 months out from the World Cup, but with a major nation. But I do think that the fact that there isn't an obvious replacement is key. And one of the reasons there isn't an obvious replacement is that no one's been in, stayed in the coaching, in Eddie Jones's coaching team for more than five minutes in, in relative terms. So everyone's gone and everyone who arrives you'd imagine is either gone or soon will be gone. The turnover is huge. So it's the whole, I remember when Eddie Jones took over, there was talk of part of his role, a key part being succession planning and who's going to take over next. Well, I don't think any of the coaches that are there now are going to be ring and head coach after Eddie Jones. I'd be very surprised. One guy that might is Steve Borthwick, but he's, he's five minutes into a project at Leicester Tigers. Would he take on that role now? Is he the right person to do it now? Everyone talks about Rob Baxter, but I don't think the RFU have ever mentioned him. So it, what do you do? Do you bring in Jake White, bring in one of the old names, bring in, Nick, bring in Nick Mallett for 18 months? Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, well, it's like when I go on, I commentate in a game and I say, he's got to play for England. And then someone will say to me, well, who'd you drop? And I'll say, yeah, really good point, actually. I'm not sure. So who are you going to replace him with that you think is going to do what Rassi Rasmus is going to do in the highest pressure job in the world game, which is what this is? He arguably, arguably, arguably the most scrutinised job in world rugby is England coach at the moment because of the resource and the player pool and all that. They are rightly under a huge amount of pressure to win everything. So I don't see progress. I, I don't believe that statement. I don't, I don't think whoever wrote that believes it or whoever's asked to type it up believes it. I think there are a couple of key areas that where England could improve potentially by picking different players. I think, you know, watching the game on... Over the course of an hour and a half, France, I don't know what the stats are and I could be proven wrong by them, but I don't think I will be. England were 
just run ragged by the ruck speed of France, run absolutely ragged. And France weren't jackaling all that hard. They weren't going that hard at the breakdown. They were largely keeping as many lads on their feet as they could and looking to collide. Anthony Gillon was just amazing in the back row, just nailing people. But England's ruck speed, England getting the ball away was just vi visibly slower than France. And it makes a great defensive team's day much easier. So I think there's a personnel issue there. That, that's what I think. And pick people in their best positions, pick the best players. I didn't think George Furback had a bad game. I mean, he's a lovely rugby player. I've watched all his games. You know, every, every minute he's played, I've watched. That's my job. He's a lovely rugby player. Really good. Is he the best fullback in England? Why don't you put the best fullback in England at fullback, put the best wingers in England at wing and pick the best scrum off in England? Why don't you do that? That's, that's a decent start. That's what France do. Ain't that bloody difficult. Yeah, I agree. And we were <laughs> I was quite angry on behalf of our episode last Thursday when we were discussing who was going to go onto the wing because we didn't have the the team out at the time of recording. And it was between we presumed Stewart would be at 15, and we were discussing Lewis Liner or Elliot Daling. We kept saying pick players in their positions. Obviously, team came out literally half an hour after we finished recording. Always the way. Yeah, yeah. Always the way. And he'd come up with something that none of the four of us, because we had Gavin Hastings on as well, none of us even mentioned it. It was going to be Liner on the wing, which Brendan was vouching for, or Daly on the wing, which Nick was... By the way, by the way, just before I forget, Gavin Hastings, just like you guys know him, just one of the best blokes, one of the, one of the greats, right? Uh, never mind his rugby, that was amazing too, but just amazing company. Two things... Gavin Hastings, I was at Wimbledon with him a couple of years ago, pre-COVID, a little on a little, you know, on the old Land Rover table. Do you know what I mean? Little perk. And there was one bloke who was late and it was Jimmy Carr and he walked in half an hour late wearing a blue suit and white trainers. And Gavin Hastings shredded him, absolutely ripped into him. I thought, mate, you're brave. But he was, he was very, very funny. He also recommended me a book called Bird Brain, which by, I think it's somebody Kelleher, I think, forget now. And it was like two quid online. And it's about a pheasant shoot, a pheasant in a pheasant shoot. It is absolutely brilliant. I recommend you all read it. You'll read it in a day or two days. It's short. It was fantastic. And he's just recommended me another book called um, Shuggy Bane. Uh, Scott, yeah, Shuggy Bane, which I'm about a third of the way through, which is also fantastic. So they're my Gavin Hastings stories. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Shout out to Birdbrain. I'm trying to look. Bird Guy, Guy Kenaway, not quite. Guy Kenaway, there you are. Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah. love it. Love that book. I've, I went. You, there aren't. I, I went online. I actually bought. I honestly bought six for fifteen quid and gave them out as uh, Christmas presents. That's yeah. actually. Oh well, well, that is very good. Oh, I, I can only see one for eight pounds fifty. So I don't. Oh, know you're getting done over. Yeah. You're getting yeah. done. I'm absolutely I'm, I'm, done over. Flats. I'm betting that Eddie Jones's leadership wasn't one, wasn't one of those books you got got on no. offer. Was it? But the book where he the book where he said Maratoji wasn't. Uh, elite wasn't going to be captain and then he said actually he is now now he is when I said that he wasn't but now he is you know all right nice one <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, right back to uh, this, I think what you've said about England's attack hits the nail on the head um, I'm throwing all sorts of stats out there today but if you exclude the Italy game England scored three tries now Ireland conceded the fewest tries in the tournament and they conceded four so they conceded more tries than England scored it could be a personnel change. I think the truth of the matter is in the midfield, Eddie refuses to look for him. It maybe doesn't have the resources to find that big ball carrier to replace Tuolangi. But how many... All right, David, you're pulling a face. I'm going to come He's to you straight. Mark, Mark Atkinson, six foot five. He's bigger than your house. Pick him. Brilliant yeah, player. Absolutely. Well, hard, runs clever lines, really good distributor. He, he's so good. He could, probably, he could probably cover 10 for half an hour if you needed him to. You could stick you could stick him at fullback if you were struggling because he's nine feet tall. He's a brilliant rugby player. He's brilliant almost every week for Gloucester. He's a key part of what they're doing. And he's not as powerful as Manu. But guess what? Most shotguns aren't as powerful as Manu. So <laughs> what are you going to do? You're going to pick two 13s in the midfield, both of whom are wonderful players. Love Joe Marchant, does it all. Henry Slade, at his best, is world class. At his best, he's pushing for a world 15 place. He can be that silky and smooth. I watch every game these guys play like you do. And I always think that Henry Slade is more threatening at 13. I always think that. Mm -hmm. So do you put Joe March in at 12? Well, not really, because he's not bulky. He's not really a hitman. I just think Mark Atkinson's ready-made, mate. I was yeah. at Cheltenham last week and he walked in with a pint in his hand. 
He's massive. He's a massive bloke. I always forget how big he is. He's a huge guy. Yeah. Stick him in. You've got yeah, one. The TV in. doesn't do it justice. Well, we, or, we, or, we, go, or ring Sam Burgess and see if he fancies a bump. <laughs> well, we, we've had many debates on this podcast about it. One idea that Brendan had, and I suppose while we're on the subject, Freddie Stewart at 12, eventually. Jamie Roberts transition. One idea that I have is Sam Simmons at 12, uh, since that's essentially where he runs out in Exeter. I'm guessing you don't prefer either of those to Mark Atkinson. No. You've got one ready-made. Why do you need to make a new one? And it was when Eddie Jones was talking about Jack Knoll being a hybrid player. He's having you on, lads. I mean, he's having us all on. I mean, he might he might be able to fill in and be heroic against Ireland, which he was. But at some point, he's going to play against Eben Etzebeth and Peter Steph Dutoy, and he's going to get folded like a deck chair. Mm. So, because he's a winger, he's a powerful winger, but he's a winger. So, if you got if you got a player, got players in that position, you don't need to you don't need to make Freddie Stewart a twelve because what is he going to do at twelve that Mark Atkinson isn't? But I think the only thing that is sort of in Freddie Stewart's favour favor is that Eddie Jones does have his favourites. And there seems to be a reluctance to pick Mark Atkinson at 12, just as there seems to be a reluctance to pick Adam Radwin on the wing. And if, if we were head coach of England, we would have our favourites too. It's human nature. We'd have guys we just didn't fancy. We'd have guys that we think are special, other people disagree with. I think in mitigation, I think, and in terms of, in, inter- in the interest of balance, we would all... It's not just data-driven, is it? We would all have opinions that others didn't agree with, I guess. But there's, you know, I mean, in terms of selection, there's a very, very significant point for me. I mean, it is a mess. He's picked, he's made 18 changes over the course of the Six Nations. France made five. So he doesn't know what his best team is. And I think that the thing that's most damaging for me is that the Tinkerman stuff that we've been getting from him for a long time now, shows a lack of confidence in players. All this chopping and changing undermines a team, not only in terms of cohesion, but in terms of the confidence of the blokes that he's sort of picking up off the shelf and then dropping the next minute. And I think that that's a very, very important uh, part of what's going on with Eddie Jones. And it's one of the reasons why I've been advocating, certainly for the last two years, that uh, England should, uh, you, you know, should move him on. There's a big difference between the All Blacks when they got to the World Cup finals that they won. There were there were any two of four centres could have started. Marnonu and Conrad Smith were we all probably thought were first choice and they were. But there was Sonny Bill Williams who got a ton of caps for the All. My point is there are four lads that could have started that game. They would have been fine. There were a couple of four lads on the wings that could have started those games. There's a big difference between squad rotation, a considered rotation, and blood making sure everyone gets game time and scattergun picking up and dropping of players. And France, to me, the England selection for the France game felt like a one-night-only selection because of the game they were expecting. And it was a reactive selection. And South Africa don't do that. They come at you, however you're going to play, they come at you with their hands strapped up and ready to go with the same guys. And I think there's that says a lot. I think there are several missed opportunities. A question to the floor. Who do we think is the biggest crime that we have, they've not been given an opportunity this Six Nations. Who would you guys like to have seen drafted in who hasn't been drafted in? I think Flat said it earlier on. I mean, for me, it's 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 Atkinson. You know, I mean, he's the obvious fit for the twelve shirt. And if he isn't, what has happened to Ollie Lawrence? Why is he suddenly dropped off the radar? I know he's, he's had injuries, but I believe he's back. You know, I mean, that that's two players that he's not reconsidered at all over the course of the or, or considered over the course of this Six Nations. He's, he's a tease isn't he Eddie? He, he puts these people in the squads, he, he gives them hope, he gives us hope and, and then just dispenses with them and, and going back I, I remember our first podcast we all said Mark Atkinson at centre he was the centre we picked and the only reason you start looking for alternatives for Freddie Stewart to come in, Sam Simmons whatever, is that he, we know he's not going to pick Mark Atkinson. Why even have him in the squad to start off with? And like Radwan, there's no reason why we should not have seen Radwan in this tournament. We, we know nothing about him now as a player, as a test player in real big matches. Nothing. And we, when we get ever closer to the World Cup, you know, this was an opportunity. So it is mystifying what he does. His front row, I mean, I, I will bow to you two totally, but how has, the, has he not tried at some stage Marler and Collier together at some stage propping now, that's, Ellis Gange has been a revelation. He's been fantastic in many, in all, well, almost everything. Sometimes, occasionally, he's, he's struggled in the scrum. But we need to have had a look at some stage at Marla and Collier. I don't understand why we didn't. Collier's not even in the squad. 
Yeah, well, I mean, just on that note, and we'll move on to other teams in a second. But how many... I've got a crime, by the way. I've got one quick crime. Go on. My crime player is Dave Ribbons, the Northampton oh. Saints second row. Absolutely no idea why he's not in the England squad. None. He is a brilliant line-out forward. He's properly fast. He's venomous. He's relentless. He's angry. He's on the edge. He is Courtney Laws 10 years ago. He's wonderful. And he's got an engine. He's got everything. He's got a flat nose because he's taken so much ball up. He looks like Mike Tyndall stretched out on a traction machine. He is he is the guy. For me, he'd be very, very close to starting for England. Certainly when there's a few injuries like there are at the moment, I can't believe he hasn't been in there. He's massive as well in a pack that's lacking physicality. I think he's 120 kilos, something like that. Right. We could use right. some of that in the second row. But yeah, just on that note, so obviously before this tournament, there were a handful of players you could earmark as you've secured your shirt for the World Cup. The Itojes, the Curries, the Laws. Do we think this Six Nations England have actually added to that? Or do we think that number has stayed exactly the same? Has anyone actually genuinely staked a claim saying this shirt is mine? I, I think that uh, Freddie Stewart has, uh, has, uh, has earmarked his place when he moves back to fullback rather than wing. I'm surprised the first name that didn't come out of your mouth was Ellis Genge. In, in adversity, he's had... A, a pretty good season. I mean, he's been England's England's sort of attack dog in a sense. You know, he's the he's the only player who's really uh, uh, carried the ball up with venom, um, tackled with venom. Ellis Gensh has made huge strides, and yeah, you're right. You're right to correct me. He's uh, he's definitely another. Uh, whether he starts ahead of Joe Joe Marler, I think really depends on Marler's hunger. Marler is. Uh, I, I'll defer to Flats on this, but Marler is is technically a superb prop. I think Ellis Genge starting and Joe Marler on the bench is perfect because Ellis Genge is, you know, is a significant attacking threat. Not just because he makes breaks and he can do that stuff, but he, he soaks up a lot of defenders, very, very aggressive. His defence is fantastic at the moment. So he's making tackling Madden Untermack the other night. Was, I don't know how he made it. I mean, they scored anyway, but I don't know how he made that tackle. There's that, but also the hits in close. He's properly leathering people now. He's a heavy hitter in heavy traffic and his scrummaging has come on so much in the last year in the last six months or year that I think you back him to get to elite level consistently by the World Cup by keeping him in and do you know what he might play against France he might play against South Africa and struggle a bit but if you got Joe on the bench he will come on and he won't struggle it's like he didn't in the World Cup final people forget that he came off the bench and England scrum dramatically improved they just say that England got wasted all day they didn't get wasted all day they didn't get wasted in the last half an hour of that game. It was too late by then. But I think the way they've got it at the moment, I think Ellis Genge had to make this kind of a coming of age Six Nations and he's done that. I think he's been largely exceptional. I think we can make allowances as well for him against Antonio because so much ball in the backfield against France, he was blowing. And if you're opposite 140 kilos of well-reared French scrum meat, you're always going to struggle, aren't you? Yeah, I think, well, yeah, I think so. I think they only had one really good scrum. I mean, the first penalty, as I said on the TV, I didn't agree with. I think actually it should have been an England penalty. Now I look at it again. So he got unlucky there and they got tuned up in one scrum. I mean, so what? <laughs> that yeah. doesn't lose you a game. Brendan, any names that you think have secured shirts that we haven't mentioned over the course of this tournament? Marcus Smith is one that hasn't come up. Do we think he's now England's starting 10, regardless of what Owen Farrell does when he comes back? No, I think the lads have got the two who have absolutely stood up in Stewart and Genge. I'd also throw in Genge into the captaincy equation. When they all went pear-shaped after 82 seconds against Ireland, it was Genge who rallied the troops. I was immensely impressed with him, the way he did that. He upped the intensity massively and, and people followed him. And I didn't, I didn't think he'd be made captain at Leicester. And what a good job he's done there. So as soon as he has secured that number one start in place... And it looks like he has now with Joe Marler as the great uh, replacement coming on. I think he goes straight into the captaincy. Uh, so that could be something that has come out of this rather disappointing campaign. Marcus Smith has been perfectly OK, perfectly adequate, but he doesn't know what scrum half he's going to have one day. He doesn't know who's playing centre. The guys who's playing at 12 isn't at 12. Uh, he doesn't know which wings he's got to work with, with the, the kick passes. So one week it's Freddie Stewart. Next week, who knows? So it's been a very difficult you know, first Six Nations for him. And he's done all right, but he hasn't absolutely nailed it down. But I think Eddie Jones is going to go with him. And I think that's good. I think that will pay dividends in the end. Uh, but he hasn't nailed it down yet. We'll see how Owen Farrell reacts when he comes back. Let's move on. Let's put the Six Nations discussion on hold and let's do David Flatman's Random Rugby 15. 
<laughs> 15 quick fire questions for you, Flat. Sound good? Yeah. Okay, great. Nickname? Flat's not very original. Best rugby memory? Best rugby memory, watching France against New Zealand at the Stade de France with Jonah Lomi playing with my dad. Went over on the Eurostar. One of the great days. Most embarrassing rugby memory? Probably getting my head shoved up my ass in a scrum by Cobus Fisagi. Embarrassing is the wrong word. That's the day I hated the most, but I did avenge that loss, so it's fine. Pre-game tune? Oh, I've forgotten. Nickelback. We used to like Nickelback. That was good. Well, they, no, Kings of Leon. Kings of Leon. That's who we like. <laughs> Kings of Leon. That was our favourite pre-match at Bath. Yeah, pre-match, anything by Kings of Leon we loved. Post-game meal? Oh, it was always the best at Bath with Jerry the chef. He's still a mate of mine now. Keep the kit man close and the chef closer. Um, he would just do pasty and chips <laughs> after the game. Loads of ketchup. And as you're eating it, it'd always walk over with a couple of cold cans of cider that he'd stuck in the fridge. Oh, everyone else had warm cider. He'd always have a couple of cans in the fridge for you. What a legend. Best player you've played against? Jason Robinson. Best player you've played with? Jason Robinson or Tim Horan, but Jason Robinson. Favourite player right now? Antoine Dupont. I want to be original, but I watch him and I think he's... If you made Test Rugby into a computer game and the coders made some players just better than others and gave them super strengths in certain areas. He looks the most competent rugby player in every area he occupies in the world. And we often in the Northern Hemisphere talk about the players being the best player in the world. Forget there's some teams down south that are doing some good stuff as well. But I think we can legitimately say that there is no there is no scrum half close to him at the moment. Rugby idol? Chris Oti, old England winger, my favourite player by a mile growing up. Favourite stadium? Stade de France after Saturday night. I mean that. I, I'd probably I'd have to think a bit harder about that. But right now, there's nowhere else I'd go. rather go and watch a test match now than there. Can't wait for the World Cup. Favourite gym exercise? Bench press. Occupation if rugby didn't exist? Uh, don't know. Something where I talk a lot. Uh, barrister? Don't know. Maybe, <laughs> like a, maybe like an underground tube announcer. Something like that. <laughs> nice. Or a town crier. Could have been a town crier. Superstitions? I ain't got one. The only superstition I've got is that don't have any because they don't work. Rugby rule you would change? I would actually reduce the number of substitutions allowed in games. I would try and, whether the number of subs on the bench, I don't know if that's what I'd change, but I would I would trial going with keeping players on for 80 minutes um, and rotating players. So, of course, you up certain players' game time and then you've got to adjust it and all that. I think there's so little space in the game now that a bit of fatigue wouldn't hurt. And it would also probably bring some average body weights down a bit, which means there might be a slight reduction in outright power, which wouldn't hurt the game. Best thing about working in rugby? Depends what channel you're working for, mate. If you're, if you're with BT Sport, you get a great lunch every time. ITV is the same. Yeah, I'm, dinner, the food you get is amazing. You get tons of it. You get more food than you can eat in every game. That's the best bit. That is an original answer. Most people have said the people. David Flatman says the food. No, I don't like the people. I think most of them are <laughs> annoying. Um, no. People are fine, but I've been with them forever. Right? The food, yeah, the it doesn't really change. Yeah. Well, you've been with food forever as well, but I suppose it, it never true. gets old, That's does true. it? I was breastfed till I was 27, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing that, Flats. Uh, let's get back to the rugby. Um, Ireland versus Scotland. A pretty one-sided game, very much in line with our predictions. We'll get to the results of our league later on. Let's focus on Scotland first. Paul Rees for the rugby paper said, another campaign of expectation unfulfilled. David, does that pretty much sum it up for you in that we were hoping Scotland would at least compete for third, maybe even second place, and that hasn't happened yet again? Yep. They're, they're a team with some lovely players who are repeatedly unable to impose the game they want to play on anybody. If they do do something brilliant, it feels like, like an anomaly. It feels like a special moment. I think pretty much everybody would like Scotland to do a lot better than they do. And in fairness, they've got two professional teams. It ain't easy, but they do have the talent to be better than they are. So I then wonder about, is the game plan right? Is the coaching sufficiently effective? Is the management team getting the best out of that group of players? Really underwhelming because they've got some lovely lads, that, lovely players that can do some lovely stuff in that team. And you just hardly see it. The knives have come out for Stuart Hogg yet again, as very reminiscent of his butchering of a try against Ireland a couple of years ago. He butchered yet another try scoring opportunity. It was a three on one inside pass to Sam Johnson. He runs in under the stick, seven points to Scotland. Not necessarily game changing, but certainly would have brought them back into it. 
Obviously, people are labelling him selfish, questioning his captaincy. Nick, do you think this is justified? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that it's probably a, a little bit uh, knee-jerk. I think that there's... Look, he, if, if truth be told, he butchered the chance, but I think he also made it. So give with one hand, take away with the other, in a sense. You know, he is sometimes... He's not the only player who's guilty of it. It happens, you know, and... I, I think that you can get too judgmental about this sort of thing. I mean, I, I do believe that um, that there are problems with Scotland. You know, I mean, they blew a great start after beating England. And one of the things that came out during the course of the tournament is their lack of discipline. And that seems to apply on and off the field. They were the most penalised side in the in the tournament. And also they obviously had their whatever it was with their curfew problems after the, uh, the, the, the Italy game and a few blokes going out for a beverage. But I'm not sure that uh, changing hog at this juncture would, um, you know, would, would make that difference. I, I don't, you know, it, it just seems knee-jerk to me. Yeah, he hasn't been helped by the disciplining that happened earlier in the week. I think what was more concerning for me was there was no reaction whatsoever when he didn't give that pass that seemed to be chastising him in some form. And to me, if you're a team holding yourself to that standard of you've got to be clinical, and Scotland, they do have to be clinical, given that they won't necessarily get as many chances in a game as a France would or an Ireland would. Johnson uh, on his inside, Stane Harris, they all came and comforted him. I don't think a player needs to be comforted in a situation like that, but rather say, right, we do not operate like that. Do you think that's an indication of Scotland's standard for the moment? Is there too much respect for Stuart Hogg, potentially? I'm with you a little bit on that, Ollie. And just a general observation, it's normally the try-scorers in a team, and Stuart Hogg is the record try-scorer for Scotland, who butcher tries as well. It's, it's part of their makeup and mentality to go for the try and be the try-scorer. They take on that responsibility. You know, I think there's a certain element of that. But that was an absolute shocker. And as you say, nobody him up on it and he, I think he's become a very big fish in a quite a small pond in one way. One thing that I would like to say in terms of uplift for Scotland is that Darcy Graham has been one of the players of the tournament. He's been absolutely brilliant for Scotland I think. All you know almost in every game you know he's he's been an uh, uh, you know he's lit the touch paper for them. So uh, another small guy with fantastic feet and uh, yeah I'd just like to uh, to sort of end the uh, Scots thing on a on a, on a, on an upbeat note. I think that's a good note to end on. And you're right; it certainly has been a tournament for the small winger, Capozzo, Villiers, Darcy Graham. Anyway, let's move on to Ireland. Obviously, triple crown winners. They had one job going to Dublin. They did that. Now, Nick, if you told Andy Farrell two months ago that the tournament would go how it would go, they'd lose to France, but they wouldn't really have a bad game. Would Andy Farrell have taken that? I, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I, I think that Farrell's DNA suggests otherwise. You know, he wants the big prizes. And uh, so I'm not sure about that. Their precision is what really sets them out. Their ability to finish chances and in a way that even better than France are at putting their chances away. Perhaps don't create quite as many, but but put more away. And certainly... Um, way way ahead of, uh, of of England and Wales in that regard. What what's happened there in terms of uh, what Farrell and and Mike Cat have achieved is really significant. The key is obviously they haven't peaked yet. Not only have they put in a strong and very positive showing, their team, Johnny Sexton aside, is young. They've got plenty of players coming through. Dan Sheehan an emblem of that seventh cap, one of Ireland's best players, if not their best player at the weekend. Further to that, let's not forget Ireland under 20 secured the Grand Slam at the weekend. So, Brendan, there is much more to come from the current Ireland outfit, but also the up and coming out Ireland outfit as well. Yeah, Ireland in an enviable position. You know, it's, it's all there for them. Their system is great. We've discussed that many times. Pretty identifiable team, although they do sort of ring the changes at centre occasionally. Great approach, great attitude. They'll be annoyed at that first half hour in Dublin, in Paris, because there was a grand slam for the taking there this season. So that's good. That'll irritate them. That'll annoy them and, and spur them on. I don't see them dipping this time. I think they'll hit Rugby World Cup running. 
uh, they've got a hell of a tough draw, uh, but I think they'll be in the mix. It's looking like they're going to face either the All Blacks or France in the World Cup quarterfinal, or very likely anyway. Flats, as they can stand, how does that look for them? Do they have reason to fear that quarterfinal, or should they have every confidence in the cohesion and system that they're slowly putting together? No, they, they could be... They could beat either of those teams. Uh, the wonderful side, Ireland, and um, it, you know a, a massive advantage that so many of their lads play together every week for Leinster because there is just the the cohesion that everyone talks about these days. But the understanding, the knowledge of people's body language and movements and reactions, and knowing how people are going to behave and where they're going to go, how they move, I, I think that that's a massive advantage for Ireland. Other teams, of course, catch up a bit at World Cups because they get concentrated amounts of time together. But Ireland will have all of that innate knowledge of one another, plus the whatever it is, two or three or four months building up to a World Cup together. There is absolutely no reason why they can't beat either of those two teams in a quarterfinal. Let's leave Ireland there. Let's move on to the first game on Super Saturday and the biggest shock of the day, certainly, which was Italy versus Wales. Obviously, the media is having an absolute field day about Capuozzo. Small guy, defying the odds, little magician. Many nicknames have been thrown around. The one Peter Jackson went with was the Mighty Atom. I don't know whether you guys have one you'd like to uh, throw in the mix, but obviously what a moment, that try in Rome. Does this moment represent the moment that instills a confidence into Italy that, one, buries any talk of them leaving the Six Nations for at least a little while, and two, in confidence in the next Italian generation, which Capuozzo has almost become the face of in the past week or so? I think yes to all of that. It wasn't just the moment of the combat of the Six Nations. It was definitely the try of the Six Nations. I mean, that was one of the best tries I have seen in decades, given the, the circumstances of the match, given the devastating run, the outside swerve and step. It, it, that was like Duckham. He combined both of them. Uh, and the presence of mind to get that inside pass to make sure they got the win, or at least Garbizzi didn't have a touch conversion. It was brilliant. And it was a fantastic breakthrough moment you know, Italy have been pretty solid this season. Uh, this is just going to take them to another level. Uh, and it's probably now a good time quickly to mention their under-20s. I've watched all their matches and they've been excellent. They finished third. They won three of the five matches. Were by no means outclassed against a brilliant Ireland side. They got nothing from the ref that night. They're a hell of a good outfit. They've got a front row that is absolutely made for Test Rugby. They've got a, a number eight, a Ferrari, who is superb. They've got a, a, a seven, a Vincente, who's terrific. They've got a classy centre. They've got a classy fullback. They've got Garbizzi's brother at scrum half. So it is a, a huge moment. And you can see it, the way Garbizzi reacted, how his team reacted, how social media has reacted. Um, and good on them. Good on them, that's all I can say. And Nick, do you agree? Does this bury any talk of South Africa becoming a part of the Six Nations and replacing them or just Italy dropping out or a playoff or anything of the sort? I think that money talks in, in rugby. And so I don't think that the South African thing will be uh, dead and buried. What I would say is, is that it, it's right. And I don't want to, I don't want to rain, on, rain on the Azuri parade at all, but I think it's right for Crowley to have kept the lid on the celebrations a little bit, or at least on the, on the uh, hyperbole after a, a seven-year, 36-game hiatus. <laughs> And what they've got to make sure is that there isn't another seven-year, 36-game hiatus. Um, but the real, you know, real plaudits to uh, Crowley and also to the defence coach, Marius Goosen, because I thought their defence against Wales was really a step yeah. up. I, I also thought that they played with real urgency and focus. You know, they seemed to have an intensity from the get-go that Wales didn't. You know, the under-20 promise is obviously a very, very good point. And, uh, yeah, I, you know, I mean, it was, and the try was, uh, you know, Brendan said it all, really. It was, uh, you know, one of the great moments. Put a smile on anyone's face as long as you weren't Welsh, definitely. And well, I, think it put, I think it put a, a smile on one or two Welshmen's faces as well, because they, they you know, they love great rugby as, as everybody. Let's hope so. And it did also allow for one of the, off-the-pitch moments of the tournament when Josh Adams went up to Capuozzo and gave him his Man of the Match medal, which yeah. was, I think was a duly, duly reminder of the game that we play and the standard that rugby continues to uphold. Let's move on to Wales, Flats. My feeling is they're in a very, very similar boat to England. We mentioned that England had made 18 changes. PVAC has gone through more than 30 players in five games. 
He clearly doesn't know his best midfield, his best back row, his back three. Do you think that the feeling is that, again, with so many changes for the Italy game and them not having come through, players haven't really made genuine claims for the shirts yet and with 80 months to go till the World Cup, there's still significant room for change? Yeah, what you've got is a country with not many teams. They just ain't that many players. And no one knows what the team will be at the World Cup. That's probably in a, in a worse spot than England because no one quite knows certain areas of the England team. Equally, there are three times the number of players just in the top league or three and a bit time. You know, so it's almost more forgivable for England. I don't, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think Wayne Pivak needs forgiving for anything. They've got less identity in terms of the way they play. Scott Williams not playing still mystifies me a little bit, but ultimately it's difficult to tell you how Wales play. People used to criticise Warren Ball, but it wasn't complicated. We knew what was coming because the expectation on Wales having got to the semi-final last time is higher than Scotland. I think you could argue that of the home nations, Wales are in the toughest spot 18 months out. I think it's the identity problem that we mentioned earlier that France have their own identity. Wales don't seem to. It makes it easier. It makes it easier for players to play. Yeah, it makes it easier to play. If you, know, if you know how you're meant to be playing, it makes it way easier. And, and I'm sure there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes, but whatever work was done before and during the Six Nations didn't quite work. Could this defeat have been what Wales needed? If they'd won convincingly, unconvincingly in Rome, this tournament, you know, it would have maybe created an, an air of comfort, which now there isn't in the Wales camp. So, Nick, do you think it would potentially, it could potentially have positive implications? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that the first positive implication is to remember, and, I, and it's not just for Wales, it's for every team celebrating their great players, that there are very few perfect salutes or farewells in international rugby. And don't let those things get in the way of the business at hand. I thought that the pre-match sort of celebrations and focus were a distraction. It was clear to me that the Welsh team was not really in the zone mentally. So not too many of the Welsh players outside Adams were on their game. Brendan, one final question for you on the topic of Wales. Shane Williams, who was our guest two weeks ago, has published on Wales not being able to nail the crucial moments. Now, this was certainly the case against England, for example, at the last World Cup. Do you see any blueprint that could help them find that extra bit of attacking instinct? That's a difficult one. In terms of not nailing the moment, the moment they didn't nail last Saturday was the clearance, wasn't it? You know, it was was it two and a half minutes to go. They were in control of the ball. Poor kick out, really. Pretty poor chase. Fantastic counter-attack. But they, there was people there. He went past seven or eight defenders. The defenders were there. It was just a rubbish chase. So... It's the, it's the big moments of clearing in defence and scoring the tries on the line that should be scored and not giving the TMO and the referee any reason to doubt that that ball would have been dobbed down. You know, they could have obviously easily have had a different result, even though they played poorly on Saturday night. So I don't know if that's mindset, mentality, fatigue, complacency. I mean, you know, I'll have to own up. I was convinced that Italy, after a good four matches, would hit a wall on Saturday. That's what they do year in, year out. They just get pummeled in the last match. They turned up. Wales didn't turn up. And there you have the match and the result. Hence your 60 points to 15 prediction, which, well... Absolutely. I know, Absolutely. I know it was a while ago now, but it, it, it was a little way off. I think I haven't totted up all the predictions, but I think that was probably the furthest prediction out. <laughs> <laughs> so you certainly got that title. I'll reveal who has the actual title in a second. But I think that's exactly it. And flat, as Flat said, there is definitely work to be done before 2023. Let us move on to our predictions league before we do player of the championship, etc. It was a low scoring week for predictions, which given Italy's win is unsurprising. Uh, Gavin Hastings added 12 points to the special guest team score, uh, leaving them in fourth place on 64. In third place, Brendan, it is you. Uh, you added 12 points. Same total as Gavin, pretty much exactly the same pattern. To leave you in third place on 84, I edged you out into second place with just a one-point difference. But Nick Kane, you have won the Rugby Paper Podcast Predictions League for 2022. You added 14 points to um, your score, leaving you on 89. So you won both the both the week and the tournament. So congratulations to you. I suppose it's bragging rights, maybe a drink down the pub at some point. But well done. And I hope you fared okay if you played along at home as well. Very quickly, gents, I want your player of the championship, your surprise of the championship, and your moment of the championship. Probably Gregory Aldrich. 
Aldrit. Sorry, Gregory Aldrit. Aldrit. Not Aldrit. <laughs> Gregory Aldrit, I think. That guy. I mean, I love some of the Irish lads too, but I watch Aldrit and I think there's there aren't many players I'd rather play with than him. Nick, do you agree? Well, it's sort of it's sort of left me with an <clears throat> with a very obvious uh, choice, and uh, but I think he would have been my choice anyway, and that's Dupont. He's taken on the captaincy as well as taken on the spiritual role of being France's talisman, and I think he's come through with flying colours in both respects. He's obviously going to go down as an all-time great. His ability is the speed of thought that he's got and the uh, the physical attributes that he's got uh, came through, and they came through when he was needed. I can't look beyond Flats' uh, choice for player of the tournament. Uh, I mean, almost a dead hit between Aldrich and Dupont. But Aldrich, I think, is one of those points of difference for France at the moment. He is a fantastic player. His only off day was against Wales, and we now learn that he was quite ill that day and probably shouldn't have played, and that kind of explains it because he is so consistent at the heart of everything they do that that was so off that it had, something had to be uh, going on. Uh, surprise player of the championship, one that you didn't expect to sort of show up in the way he does. I think there's a, there's a certain can- Italian candidate who oh, yeah. won the game on Saturday. Yeah, well, the, the 12-year-old fullback. There are, there are lots of these lads around at the moment who disprove the theory that rugby players are all giants and they're all freaks. They're not. There are some big old lads in that French team as well. And there's some little fellas out there, just not great yeah. big guys. There are lots of guys, you know, Jaminet's not a huge guy. Villiers is not huge. Dupont, Untermac, these are not giants. They're just wonderful players. And Capoeira is the best expression of that in this Six Nations, you know, miniature in, you know, in sort of the terms of modern rugby. But... I mean, cutting people to ribbons when it counts most. I mean, how, however, even if you're Welsh, or no, not even if you're Welsh, for everyone except the <laughs> Welsh, that was just bloody wonderful because of someone producing that under that much pressure. Wow. Yeah. And I can't even believe he's 22. Not that 22 is old, but the 20. Yeah, I'm not having it. I believe it. <laughs> he looks about, yeah, well, like you say, 12. Do not forget, he came on the second half replacement in Rome nine days ago and scored two tries and looked to the man of born. So they haven't exactly been hiding him. Italy played this guy in the 2019 Junior World Cup. He was terrific. He scored a try, not unlike the one in Cardiff. Uh, so the talent has always been there. He's been playing pro de deux for uh, Grenoble. You know, he is on the way and now, now he's arrived. Nick? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to uh, come up with anybody other than Capuazzo as well. 11 stones soaking wet. Unbelievable, really. And... Playing in pro de, uh, pro pro de, as uh, as Brendan says, it just should remind the RFU of the talent that is out there in lower divisions and what it can do given the right environment for for promotion. That's what I would say. Capuozzo is a great great example of that. He's such a small guy, but such a fantastic talent. Moment of the championship. That try, Capoetto's try for Italy against Wales was the moment of the championship. Not my moment of the championship because I was at the pub and I bet Wales to win and the rest of the table had Italy <laughs> and I, I had to buy it. everyone a non-price limited drink after that. So there was oh, yeah, a bottle, bottle of champagne, was it? Yeah. Not a bat pint, a bottle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was clearly the moment. But as a little sub-moment, Dupont's final try and, and just before he set off, you know, you get a feeling when you're watching, you think, right, this is it. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. And he just did exactly, he did that big thing, sent Jamie George, and off he goes. And I thought it had to be done. France needed that try at that moment. He was the man to do it, and he did it. And I just thought, you know, this was, that was computer game rugby. It was magnificent. Nick, the Capoazzo uh, sign-off, you know, lit up Super Saturday. Uh, and... Um, you know, the pyrotechnics at the Stade de France with obviously a, uh, an absolutely ecstatic crowd afterwards was a, uh, was a great party and festival of uh, the rugby that France had produced during the tournament. And uh, well done to them. Well done to them. And it was a fantastic Super Saturday. And if the party is still going in Paris, then keep enjoying. Um, and we hope that regardless of where you were watching from, that you enjoyed the rugby. Gents, it's been an absolute pleasure. That brings our Six Nations sequence of episodes to an end. And thank you so much for joining me throughout the 
eight weeks. I look forward to the episodes to come. Likewise. Cheers, Ollie. Well done. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Brent. Cheers, Nick. A reminder to pick up your copy of the rugby paper in stores on Sundays or through an online subscription, have it delivered straight to your door. We've got a short 10-day break now, but the Rugby Paper podcast will be back for episode nine next Thursday on our regular day. We will be picking an England 15 for 2023 with me, Nick, Brendan, and ex-England fly half, Toby Flood.